Nehemiah chapter 8. Let me give you the background of this. 30 minutes, Lord Jesus, help us. Okay. You going to stay with me? Okay, I'm going to do my best. The children of Israel, in, uh, as we look at chapter 8 of Nehemiah, the children of Israel had been taken into captivity because, quite frankly, they had dealt carelessly, if not casually, with the presence of God. They had dealt carelessly with their purpose on the earth. And they started to um, take a lot of things for granted in, in great measure. And as we are all prone to do along the way, they simply got bored with the things of God. When you read it, that's what you discover. Of course, this caused them to drift away from God. And the end result was that a foreign nation came along and took all the people captive for 70 years into a nation which was initially called Babylon and eventually belonged to the Medo-Persians. Then in three separate stages, the miraculous opened and the people were given an opportunity to go back home and to rebuild their testimony. The last group, or the third group of people, uh, were under the leadership of this man called Nehemiah. Nehemiah was really just a butler in the Medo-Persian king's court. But he began hearing reports from his brothers of what was going on in Jerusalem and how that many of the people had gone back, the, the people of God, and they were trying to rebuild. And, but at the same time, even though they were doing that, they were very discouraged with what was taking place and they were experiencing a lot of reproach concerning them. In other words, they were being mocked and they were having to endure a lot of uh, mockery and, and reproach. When Nehemiah heard this report because it was his people, it was a people that he loved and obviously broke his heart. But being a man given to prayer, he began to pray and God began to lead him. God gave him incredible favor to go back to Jerusalem, as many of you know, and to rebuild the wall around the city of God, which, has been, which had been broken down due to the previous neglect. And then miraculously, in just 52 days, the task was complete. The wall was rebuilt. It was truly a miracle. He had just encouraged everyone to start building in the vicinity of their own home. It was men and their, and their wives. It was men and their sons. It was men and women and their daughters. And they all just began to build together. The task was completed in just 52 days. Even their enemies had to acknowledge that it was truly a miracle and that God was with these people. Let me just say this. When, when God begins to move amongst us and we operate in obedience to what God uh, has asked us to do, things are able to be done that we could not normally do on our own. And it's done within a time frame that we could not accomplish on our own. And it's done with skills that none of us have naturally because that's what our God is able to do with obedient people. And so... When it was all done, under Ezra the priest, Nehemiah and others, they gathered all the people together to again open the word of the Lord and to read it to the people. They had not really been all that committed to the word of the Lord. And it was because of their lack of seriousness to God's word that they fell into captivity in the first place. They did not really take God at his word, even though... God had given them many warnings. For example, uh, if you go to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, 
The warnings are clearly there of what would happen to them if they neglected this great relationship that had been forged uh, with the Lord and that God, God had brought them into. And of course, they did neglect it. And all of those warnings that we see in Deuteronomy, the latter part of Deuteronomy 28, they came to pass. But now they're coming back and they're trying to rebuild. And I want you to get a picture of the scene with me this morning, get a middle image of what's going on. They're trying to rebuild their testimony out of the rubble. And when the priests open the word of God, here's how it went. Nehemiah chapter 8, I'm starting at verse 6. Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted. And they lifted their hands when they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Then the Levites, and there's a bunch of them, they then, they then instructed the people, yes, I can pronounce the ball if you really need me to, I will. They instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people to understand each passage. And then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this. For today is a sacred, or your version may say holy day, before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law, caused them to weep. And Nehemiah continued, go and celebrate with a feast and rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of chocolate brownies with the pastor. Worded a little different than King James. Okay. <laughs> Share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. Please don't bring us chocolate brownies. We've got plenty of stuff. <clears throat> this is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad. Come on, one more time. And the Levites, too, quieted the people, telling them, hush, don't weep, for this is a sacred day. So the people went away to eat and drink at a festive meal, to share gifts of food, and to celebrate with great joy because they had heard God's words and understood them. Now, obviously, not everything that was declared is written down here. But what we do know is this, is that when the words of God were opened... All the people could see or hear or sense or feel was failure. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me, absolutely. Have you ever been in a season of your life where you open your Bible and you begin to read about issues of the heart? You begin to read about character and it's, it's almost as if every verse has a little red button next to it starting to flash the word Fail, 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 fail. Well, that's what was going on here. It's exactly how these people would have felt as the word of God was being read to them. And the only thing they could see was their failure. Oh, God, you warned us. and We didn't listen. You told us and we didn't take it seriously. You even told us what would happen to our children. We didn't listen and we ended up in captivity. And we brought your name into reproach. 
and that greatly grieved their hearts. As the words of God were being read to them, they realized again the calling that had been placed upon their lives. Abraham was their father, and through them there was supposed to be a blessing that would come and touch the entire known world, but they felt like such abject failures. Frankly, I understand how they felt. I have felt that way myself also. Maybe you have too. Lord, every word I'm reading from your book is not producing any joy in me. In fact, it's only producing sorrow because all I see is failure upon failure upon failure. When I read like the words of Paul, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I know the times I have failed in that. And I, quite frankly, in my defensiveness, I've wanted to say, Paul, that's easy for you to say. You weren't married. Men, don't laugh. This is not a time for you to laugh. <laughs> oh, God, I'm such a failure. I see what I should be, but I also see clearly what I am not. And it reminds me of what Paul says, <coughs> excuse me, in the book of Romans. He says, I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. Instead, I, I do what I hate. I do what I, I don't want to be doing. So the people were weeping when they heard the words of God. There was simply ruin everywhere they looked. Maybe this is just me, and I hope it's not you. Do you ever have days where it seems like everywhere your eye lands, you see nothing but ruin and despair? <laughs> where You look north, south, east, west, up, down, all around you, and it's all, there's something not pleasant about everywhere your eye looks, every relationship your mind ponders feels either like it's, it's fragile or, or about to fall apart or totally in destruction. It just feels like there's not a place your thoughts or your eye can land that is, that is not in complete devastation. I'm probably the only one, but that happens to me. And you sit back and you take inventory of your life and it's, it's depressing to say the least. Oh man, the expectations you had set for your life are so far uh, so far out of reach from the reality of where you really are in life. I, I thought by now I would have, surely by now I should have been, is there anyone who left who has a good thought about me? Everybody seems mad at me right now. And then, if I don't watch it, that can lead to thoughts like, so this is the bane of my existence? Is this the way it's going to be from here on out? Whoa is me. And then you begin singing that dear old hymn of the church, gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark depression, excessive. Oh, you did watch it. I knew I caught you. You're busted. If it weren't for bad luck, you'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony in me. No, kids, that is not a hymn of the church. It's from Hee Haw. Ask your grandparents. They were obviously watching it every Saturday night when it was on. But isn't it easy to become overwhelmingly discouraged? Wow. And you open the Bible, and all it seems to do is remind you of what you are not. And right in the midst of this environment that I'm describing that we've read about, Right in the midst of this dark cloud that's hanging over the people, we read the 10th verse 
of the 8th chapter of Nehemiah. It says, don't be dejected and sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, I heard a little soft hallelujah there. I understand, because we are, we are in this flesh, <laughs> I understand that the human response to that most likely would be, so, are you telling me I'm supposed to walk around pretending to be happy when I'm not? You expect me to just ignore all this stuff that's going on in my life? Really? Is that what you're saying? Are you saying that I should put on some plastic smile on my face and quote that scripture that the joy of the Lord is my strength, even though I absolutely do not feel that way inside? But remember also that this word of instruction to them included this. Not only is the joy of the Lord your strength, but you need to go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. Don't be dejected and sad, for this is a holy day before the Lord, and the joy of the Lord is your strength. And guess what? The people did it. And the point is, what did they hear? What did they hear? Scripture tells us, you read it with me a moment ago, they understood the words that were declared to them. So what were specifically the words declared to them? And what is the joy of the Lord that is supposed to be my strength? Come on, it has to be more than just me being happy while I look upon the mess of my life. It, that, that, that can't be what it is. And for them, it had to be more than just saying to the people, go home and don't worry. No, oh, you've been to Jamaica too. Because that certainly doesn't cut it most of the time. So for the next few minutes, let me present an idea to you this morning about having the joy of the Lord. How many would like a good dose of the joy of the Lord this morning? I got something for you. To do so, I direct you to Luke chapter 15 and a very familiar story to you. Starting in verse 11 of chapter 15 of Luke, we read where Jesus speaks in parable form of a man, that's parable with a P, of a man who had two sons. <clears throat> the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Notice that. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all of his money in wild living. So let's find some parallels here. This young man had this relationship with his father, just as the children of Israel had with God in the Old Testament. But this young man, he doesn't appreciate it for whatever reason. And when I read it, I'm left to assume that in his immaturity, he doesn't yet value his father or truly understand who his father is or what his father is. He doesn't yet fully comprehend what it means to be related to his father. So however he arrived at this point or this place, he basically reached the point of saying, I'm done. 
with this place. It's just too narrow for me. I don't like it here anymore. All these rules and rules and rules, they're just way too restrictive. And for whatever reason, he had concluded in his mind there has to be more to life than this. He's kind of representative, representative of the kind of person who says, you know, I find the church too narrow. I find the call of God too small. There has to be something other than this out there in this big world of ours. And he says to his father, so give me what is mine. And I, I always find it interesting to see in this parable, parable of Jesus that the father gives him no resistance, no pushback whatsoever. There's almost an immediate response. This young man could easily be construed as a type of the person who essentially says, God, give me the salvation you offered. I'm going to take that. Give me the life you offered. Give me the, the promise of provision you said you would give. Give me the future that you promised would be mine. I want all that and whatever else, but I'm going to go find life for myself because I find this place just too narrow. It's not cool enough for me. So the father actually gave him his inheritance, and the boy took it, and he went as far away from his dad as he possibly could go from the heart of his father. And he wasted that inheritance all on himself. This is um, a type of a Christian who never finds their purpose in life. A Christian who fails to understand that we are called to be ambassadors to an incredible kingdom. But rather than to live for the benefit of others, he chooses to live for himself saying, I want to find joy more than I've known in the relationship I've had with my father. There has to be more, uh, more joy than what I've found being with my dad. So about the time his money ran out, verse 14, a great famine swept over the land. And guess what? He got hungry. He began to starve. I have a sense that the sovereign God created that famine and caused that to happen just as we are seeing a spiritual famine in our land today, which I believe is being put upon us in God's effort to bring his people home. It's the same thing. I think God is setting the conditions. So the boy's hungry because of this famine that's happened on the land, and he needs a J-O-B. He persuaded then a local farmer to hire him and so the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Come on. <laughs> Could there be anything worse for a Jewish boy than to be feeding pigs? It's as, it's as low as you can go. Doesn't get any lower than that. This is a type of a Christian person who ends up doing things they would never have believed that they would have ever stooped to. Walking away from the call of God. Never thought they would have done that. Walking away from the house of the Father. Can't imagine. There was a day I could never have imagined I would have, have done that. And ending up in the place you never thought 
you would be. And once you get there, you begin having thoughts like, like I, I somehow thought I was, I was beyond this. How, how did I end up in the lowest of the low? How did I end up in this filthy, awful place? I thought I had was raised with more culture and more class than this. I had better upbringing than this. I, I shouldn't be here. My family heritage is, is better than this. How in the world did I ever end up here feeding pigs? It is the most unclean thing. Well, the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs started looking good to him. I won't even tell you where my mind goes with that little, you know, little deep fried something and, and put some chocolate on it, put some barbecue sauce on it. And that started looking good to him. The most filthy thing started looking good. But no one, Scripture says, gave him anything. And can I just tell you this? I'm glad no one gave him anything to eat. I'm very glad about that. I'm glad he felt rejected. It is a good day, listen to me, when the world rejects you as a Christian. No, you didn't hear that at all. It is a good day when the world rejects you as a Christian. And I want to just say this. Well, when the world rejects you, what happens? Here's the reason I say that. When the world rejects you, your limited options start pushing you back to the Father. That's why it's a good day when you're rejected by this world. You get pushed back to the Father. And I was praying in my office early this morning and looking through this idea right here. And it just was a reminder to me. You know, I, I, I'm not very good at it, but I sure try to be a fix-it guy. Whatever's going wrong, whatever, you know, certainly to those who are close around me. I, I want to be the fix-it guy. How many fix-it people do we have in the house? You feel responsible for fixing everybody's problems and everybody's issues and all of that. And I, again, I'm, I'm a... I'm a failure at that, but it is the desire of my heart. And you know what I know what I've done? There's been a few times I've gotten in the way of God's work in someone's life. I just want to, and I don't know who this is for today or if it's for anybody, but it's very possible that in your effort to be Mr. Fix-It or Miss Fix-It, you are right in the way of what God is trying to do with that person who's come to you because God is intentionally making them miserable. He's intentionally causing them to be hungry. He's intentionally, intentionally causing their options to be limited. There's a reason for that, so that it's pushing them back to the Father, not to you. I just threw that in for free, no extra charge. Verse 17, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. And as the story unfolds at this point, you can almost see him thinking to himself. You can read this into this. So what do I, so what do, I do now? Let's see. What's the, um, there's got to be some formula for getting back in good graces with my father. What did he teach me? What was I, what was I, I taught? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I will go home to my father and I will say, Father, I, I, I've sinned against both heaven and you. Father, I've sinned against both heaven. I've got to memorize this. I've sinned against both heaven and you. Um, what else? I'm, um, I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Okay, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please, and please take me on as a hired servant. Okay, can I remember? It's three things. Okay, 
I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me as, as your hired servant. Can't you just see him walking down the road rehearsing these statements over and over and over because he's now needing to get back to his father. And now, and he's, it's as if he's saying, I understand I have forfeited plan A for my life. Because now I'm on plan Z. And it's not working. I've blown it. I know that I've blown it. I've made a huge mess. I've dishonored your name. And my life will never be the same again. But dad, I, I'll come back to your house. And, 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 and I'll, I'll grab a broom. Nothing wrong with grabbing a broom, by the way. And I'll clean the halls. And, I, and I'll grab a rake and I'll rake the gardens and, and, and the yard. Because you see, here's the issue. This young man had a much higher calling on his life. Somebody hear that. Here he is walking the long road back, feeling so unworthy, practicing all of his lines, what he needs to say to see if he can get back in his dad's good graces. And he smells like a pigsty. He smells unclean. He's filthy. And how many people come to church like that trying to get right with God? Father, I'm not worthy. Make me like one of your hired servants. I'll never be worthy again. I'm, and I'm so sorry for what I've done. And, and, and I'm just going to crawl the rest of my Christian life. And I'll, I'll come to the altar and I'm going to cry really big tears. And my testimony will be of what a great mess I made of my life. And yet you allowed me to come home. Verse 20. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off. Somebody hear that today. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son. And he embraced him. And he kissed him. Oh, hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Come on, church, get a visual of that with me. Imagine this filthy boy walking down the road. He stinks. He's made a mess of his life. He's broke. He has nothing left. He has done things that have brought his own father's name into disgrace. And he's coming down the road. He's rehearsing his lines. He's practicing what he's going to say. When suddenly he looks up ahead and here comes this old man running down the road. His robes are flowing behind him. His white hair is blowing in the wind. And he's running down the road to his son. I can imagine the servants saying to each other, where is he, Where's he going? Where's the master going? But he saw his son coming down the road. You know why? He had been waiting for his son. That's why he saw his son coming down. That's who our God is. And he's waiting for some of you today. That's what the purpose and mission of God in this world has been all along. He didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. Who's glad about it today? He didn't come because you had it all together. He didn't come because we were righteous or noble or wise or strong. He came because we are weak and we are foolish and we do stupid stuff and we make mistakes. Every last one of us. Can I get an amen to that? Came to us because only he could bridge the great divide that was created between us and the kingdom of God. Now I, I, I can't fully know what was in the heart of the sun. But have you ever been in a church service where you feel like God's speaking to you or God's calling you and you're not 
quite sure what God's response is to you is going to be. I mean, I think that's where this son was. What's going to happen here? He's running toward me. I, 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 and he's, at, he's at a distance. And so what, is that, what does that run mean? Is he going to slap me in the face? Is he going to smack me? Was his father going to run toward him but stop about 10 yards short and point his finger and say, don't you dare think about coming home after the mess you've made of the family name. How dare you even come on this property? The son could not be sure what the father was going to do and how surprised he must have been when the father reached out his arm and embraced him and kissed him. And I want you to know this today. Under the religious rule of that time, when you embrace someone, you took upon yourself the smell of that person. That's exactly what happened. When the father embraced the son, he took the smell of the filthy pigs upon himself. And I want you to know today when Jesus Christ went to the cross and spread his arms open wide and those nails were driven through his hands, he took upon himself the filthy smell you had and the abominable smell I had. He took the stain of our lives. He took the shame of our lives. He took all the foolish, stupid things that you and I have ever done, even as believers in Christ. He took it all upon himself. Blessed be the name of Jesus. How surprised that son must have been when his father embraced him. The father puts his arm around his son. He starts walking back home with his son in his arm. And the boy starts his lines that he's rehearsed. He's going to say this today. Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please just make me as one of your hired servants. And the father's not even talking to him, according to what we've read. The father doesn't even acknowledge that the boy is saying anything. Because the first thing out of the father's mouth was this. Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. And I'm talking about that robe that is reserved for royalty. The robe that's reserved for the highest and the best. Put that robe on him. And when that robe was put on the boy, it covered the smell of his shame. It covered the places he had been. It covered any semblance of his rugged life and his rugged past. He was now being received as royalty, not as a slave, not as plan B, but as royalty coming into his father's house. How stunned the servants must have been. It's the fact that God's heart is so towards us. He so loves us. He is so taken with us. Made me think of the hymn, Amazing Love, How Can It Be That Thou, My God, Shouldst Die For Me? That God, the almighty, sovereign God, who lives in perfection, has set his heart and desire on you and me. We are his trophies forever. And the best robe in the house of God is the blood of Jesus Christ. The covering of Jesus Christ takes the stench of where we've been. Blessed be God forever. And the stain and reproach of what we've done. Hallelujah to the Lamb. And as if that's not good enough, he said, get a ring on his finger. The ring is a signet of the Father's authority. In other words, the Father was saying to his son, you're not coming into my house as plan B. You're not coming in as a gardener either. No, you're coming in as a son. You're coming in with the full authority of my house. 
the signet ring on the son's finger meant when he sealed a document with that ring, he carried the authority of his father. And that reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke 10. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means harm you. The ring of authority, not a slave, not second class, not plan B, not plan C, not plan D, plan A. You are my son. Hallelujah. And the father says, and bring the sandals and put them on his feet. In other words, son, you're going to take a journey. You're going to represent me now. I'm going to send you places and you're going to talk about me. And what do you think the boy's message was from that point forward? The seven steps to this, the 14 steps to that? No, 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 no. It was this. You've got to meet my dad. You've got to know my father. For my life was a mess. I was living in a pigsty. And I came down the road and he embraced me and covered me and empowered me and invited me to represent him and his house. And now he brings him into the house. And here's where it gets really interesting. Scripture says he brought him in, killed a fatted calf, arranged for a celebration, called for the musicians. How do I know that? Because in verse 25, when the older son came and got near the house, he could hear the music and dancing. Now, get this picture. The father has brought the boy into the house. The boy is standing in the corner of the room. He's got the robe. He's got the ring. He's got the shoes. And he's now the center of attention of the whole event. The feast is in his honor. The musicians are playing. And there's dancing. And the boy looks at his father. And I don't know if you've ever been to a Jewish wedding or not. I happen to know a little bit about this because I played the lead role of Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof. And I had to learn how to dance like this. <laughs> Hands are up. A lot of this kind of stuff. It's been 50 years ago I was better then. But it's a lot of twirling and spinning round and round, which represents joy, unspeakable joy. And the boy looks at his father dancing, and suddenly it hits him. That's the joy of the Lord. It's my father's joy to bring me home. It's my Father's joy to cover my failure. It's my Father's joy to empower me over my enemies. It's my Father's joy to call me to represent him and his kingdom. And he looks at his father, and he discovers, and it's not his, the boy, not the boy's joy. We have read that wrong for years. We think that means that's our joy. But yet it's, it's always said it right there. It's the joy of the he looks at his father. It's not his joy, but it's his father's joy, which gives him strength. Church, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Get it today. That's exactly what Nehemiah and Ezra and the others were telling the people of God. It is God's joy to bring you home. Don't despair. Don't be all downcast today. No, go celebrate. It's God's joy to restore you. It's God's joy to give you the power to rebuild that which was lost. It's, it is the joy of the Lord to do this for you, and that is the source of your strength. Does it become my joy? Yes, it does. But first, it's his joy. 
not mine. That means for you today that there is a source of strength for you today because it's in the joy of the Father, the joy of the Lord, because he delights in you, because his arms are wide open to you, because his heart is so inclined to you. You bring him joy. You, 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 you bring him joy. And his joy provides the strength to you. Somebody say hallelujah today. That's why Nehemiah said to the people, and Nehemiah continued, go and celebrate. He's saying this to people who were downcast, depressed, felt like failures, had no reason to go on. We've messed everything up. No. Go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing. Go ahead. Feast on this incredible joy and let it spill over to others because this is a sacred day. This is a holy day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad for the joy of the Lord. Say it again. The joy. Come on, one more time. Stand and shout it out one more time. Come on, the joy. One more time. 